Today on Against the Grain, the Republican Party is gripped by a hatred of immigrants. But geographer Reese Jones argues it has not always been so. Instead, one man, the late John Tanton, was responsible for making immigration appear a central concern of conservatives by promulgating scores of anti-immigrant organizations, some of which eventually helped staff the Trump administration. And as Jones points out, Tanton's nativism originated from an unexpected place, the environmental movements of the 60s. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. A little-known conservative, shaped by the environmental movements of the 1960s and 70s, has had an outsized impact on American politics. John Tanton died in 2019, but he shifted opposition to immigration to the center of the Republican Party and the many organizations he spawned populated the Trump administration with staffers, including Trump campaign manager and senior advisor Kellyanne Conway, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and senior advisor to the president, Stephen Miller. In his book, White Borders, the History of Race and Immigration in the United States from Chinese Exclusion to the Border Wall, published by Beacon Press, Reese Jones argues that while nativism has a long history in the United States, the Tanton Network is uniquely responsible for making opposition to immigration a key battleground. Jones is chair of the Department of Geography and Environment at the University of Hawaii. Reese, you argue that immigration policy in this country has always been about racial exclusion. Can you trace for us the earliest laws that limited immigration on racial grounds? This is something that a lot of people have a misconception about. They, they think that there have always been immigration laws about who could enter the United States. And that turns out to not be true. Um, the first national immigration law in the United States was not put in place until 1875, so almost 100 years after the Declaration of Independence. Um, there were state-level restrictions on immigration uh, in states like Massachusetts or New York, which were the ones receiving the most immigrants coming from Europe. Um, they had some restrictions on the arrival of the very poor or people who were infirm, um, but those tended to not turn away very many people. Some of the Southern states also put in place some immigration restrictions in the early years, um, focused on free blacks. Um, so if there were black people who worked on ships that arrived at the ports in the south um, there were restrictions on their ability to move freely in southern states um, these state level restrictions though were ruled unconstitutional um, in 1849 in the passenger cases and then again in 1875 um, in the case of uh, chi long which is one of the ones i talk about in the book um, so it wasn't until 1875 that the federal government had any restrictions at all on who could enter the United States. Um, and the decision to start to implement those restrictions is closely tied with the arrival of non-white immigrants. Um, as people who didn't fit with the normal type of person who had been coming to the United States freely in the first century, who were predominantly from Northern Europe, from the, the United Kingdom, from Germany, from Scandinavian countries, when immigrants started to arrive in California after the gold rush, um, there started to be a push to have restrictions on who could immigrate to the United States. How much of the policies and laws that were passed uh, in the 1870s, in the 1880s, had to do with maintaining white supremacy after the Civil War? I think that is a crucial part of it. Um, that's one of the arguments that I make in the book, is that um, after the Civil War, the white population of the United States was faced with something they had not expected, which was citizenship for non-white people. Um, and I think you see three reactions to that. 
Uh, the first is violence towards African Americans in the United States, um, the rise of the KKK, but then also uh, Jim Crow laws um, that try to reimpose that white order that had been in place before the Civil War. The second reaction um, of whites to non-white citizenship in the years after the Civil War was the effort to remove blacks from America. Um, there was a group called the American Colonization Society, which organized the, um, the, the movement of free blacks back to Africa. Um, that's why the, the country of Liberia was set up, for example. Um, and that group remained uh, in place until the 1960s. It didn't disband until 1964. Um, the third reaction, though, to non-white citizenship after the Civil War was to ensure that no more free non-white people could come to the United States and attempt to become citizens in the country. Um, in the book, I talk about a politician named James Blaine. He was a senator from Maine. He's probably the most famous person in the 1870s and 1880s who didn't quite become president. Um, he ran for president, I think, three times. He was the nominee of the Republican Party one time, but he never actually won the presidency. Um, he was also the secretary of state two different times in his lifetime. Um, so a, a very prominent figure. And he was the first uh, East Coast politician to speak out strongly against Chinese immigration. Um, and he gives uh, a speech in the Senate and then also writes like opinion pieces in, in New York newspapers talking about the that if the racial history of the country gives us any lesson, it's that we don't want more racial troubles. Um, and for him, the arrival of the Chinese poses a new racial trouble. And for him, the solution to that is to stop the immigration. Tell us about how the pseudoscience of racial difference emerged and its fate from the early 20th century on. Yeah, I think that it's tied to what we were just talking about, that as this new white supremacist order emerges after Reconstruction and after the Civil War, um, which places white people at the top of this hierarchy um, and keeps African-Americans at the bottom through Jim Crow laws, through violence, um, and excludes non-white people through immigration restrictions, um, that there is an effort in universities to come up with a explanation for that, a justification for this violent hierarchy that's being imposed in the country at the time. Um, and so you see scholars at a number of the, um, the, the big Ivy League schools um, at Harvard, at Columbia, at MIT, um, who were writing these books at the end of the uh, 19th century and beginning of the 20th century that is describing this racial hierarchy um, that, that they want to uh, use to understand um, the people of the world. In these books, the, there's no question uh, in, in their thinking that white people are superior to um, people from Asia and people from Africa. Um, in a lot of ways, the, the books are really about creating classifications even within white-skinned people. Um, and there's an effort to raise up the idea of a Nordic race, of a Northern European race that is the most superior group of people um, compared to anyone else. Um, and the argument that emerges out of this is the idea that America at the time has a very large proportion of people from these Northern European countries um, and that it's necessary to protect that, to prevent the arrival of other non-white people, of people from Southern Europe, who at this time are, are described as inferior in this kind of eugenics um, uh, pseudoscience of the era. Um, and that the only way to, to protect this white race in America is through immigration laws. Um, and to, um, in the words of one of the most prominent figures at the time, Madison Grant, he wrote a book called The Passing of the Great Race, um, which laid out 
the, the superiority, supposed, of uh, Nordic whites, um, who he calls the white man par excellence in the book. Um, and then he, he's someone who was a conservationist. And so for him, he had previously done work about protecting the um, bison in the West. Um, and he realized that the way to do that is to create these protected areas where they weren't under threat. Um, and his insight is to think of immigration laws as a way to create essentially a protected area for the white man in America um, and not have it be under threat from the arrival of these other racial groups. The 1920s saw a resurgence of nativist movements and the Ku Klux Klan, in fact. What do you think drove that resurgence and what laws came out of that period around these questions of immigration? Yeah, the beginning of the 20th century is an era of nativism in the United States. Um, the Ku Klux Klan um, had first been formed after the Civil War, but it was pushed out of existence fairly quickly in the years after during the Reconstruction era by a concerted effort um, by uh, Ulysses S. Grant to crack down on that vigilanteism in the South. Um, the second Ku Klux Klan started in 1915 after the film The Birth of a Nation created this kind of idealized version of that first Klan. Um, and it was started by a, a man in Georgia named William Simmons. Um, the second clan differed from the first because the first was a really was a separatist group, right? It was like the Confederacy. Um, so it was racist through and through, but it was also separatist. It imagined a, a different future away from the United States. The second Ku Klux Klan was still racist, but it was also nationalist. Um, and so Americanism was at the forefront of the rhetoric of the second clan. Um, so instead of that Confederate separatism, it's replaced with anti-immigrant language. Um, and this is an era during uh, the 19-teens when uh, World War I is sending a lot of refugees from Europe into the United States. There are a lot of Jews arriving in the United States during this era because of pogroms in Europe against them. Um, and so the second rising of the KKK is shaped by this anti-immigrant rhetoric, um, that these immigrants are a threat to this white character of the United States. Um, and the KKK grows extremely rapidly during this era to where they have uh, millions of members within just a few years of when it's first founded. Um, so it's a, a, a powerful and influential group in the, the 1920s, for sure. Um, and it matches up with this moment that the elites in the Northeast are talking about the race hierarchy of eugenics and the threat that non-white immigrants bring in terms of the racial purity of the country. Um, the KKK is, is uh, organizing at a mass scale. Um, and at the same time, on the West Coast, there continues to be anti-Asian efforts, right? So by the, by the 19-teens, Chinese immigration is banned, um, but Japanese immigration is still thought of as a threat, and also immigration from the rest of Asia um, is something that is actively organized against on the West Coast. And those three things kind of come together after World War I um, to produce the 1920s immigration laws. Um, I guess the first one would be the 1917, actually. So in 1917, the Immigration Act includes an Asiatic barred zone um, that bans all Asian immigration to the United States. Um, then in 1921, Congress passes the Emergency Quotas, which put strict limits on the number of people that can arrive from Europe. Um, but it ties those limits to the population that's already existing in the United States. Um, and so the result is that immigrants from Italy or Greece or Eastern Europe are almost completely banned by these limits, but people coming from Northern Europe have freedom to continue to immigrate to the country. Um, those laws are finalized in 1924 um, with the big Immigration Act. It's often referred to as the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act after the two sponsors in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. Um, and that act finalizes both the Asiatic Bard Zone, so there continues to be no Asian immigration in the 1924 law. Um, and it also puts those strict limits on uh, immigration from Europe, and it pushes back the date that they use as the baseline um, to make it even more strict for Southern and Eastern Europeans. Um, and so uh, in, in the aftermath of it, um, the, 
the people who passed it um, describe it in very much white supremacist terms. They talk about um, protecting the racial uh, composition of the United States as it stands. Um, the president who signed it into law was Calvin Coolidge. Um, he had run for president on a platform of keep America American. The, the parallels are still very clearly there. Geographer Reese Jones is my guest. We're discussing his book, White Borders, the History of Race and Immigration in the United States from Chinese Exclusion to the Border Wall. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So, of course, a lot changed from the period that you're discussing, the 1920s, to the 1960s when a key immigration act was passed, that is the 1964 Hart Seller Immigration Act. One thing we haven't talked about yet is citizenship law in the United States. So although for the first 100 years there were no immigration restrictions at all at the national level, um, there were rules about who could become a citizen of the United States. Um, the first naturalization law uh, passed in 1790 limited citizenship to free white persons who had been in the United States for a period of two years. Um, and that phrase, free white person, remains in citizenship law for a very long period of time. Um, the law is amended after the Civil War so that by 1870, people of African ancestry are added to who can become a citizen of the United States, but free white person is retained during that period. Um, it's not until 1952 that the term free white person is removed from citizenship law. Um, so for the first 160 years um, that the U.S. had rules about who could become a citizen, that citizenship was limited to free white people. So I think that the immigration laws that we've been talking about make sense in the context of who could become a citizen of the country. Um, since citizenship was limited to white people, um, the idea was to prevent the arrivals of non-white people who couldn't become citizens anyway. Um, so it's, uh, I think, is an, an important part of understanding this history of white supremacy in the United States. So you were saying that these laws, this language wasn't removed till the 1950s. And I wanted to ask you about how eugenic, racist justifications for immigration or restricting immigration, particularly from different particular places and particular people, how that fared following World War II in that, obviously, the experience of fascism and the kind of eugenic laws and ideology that was used to justify the killing of millions at that point was shaken, if not utterly discredited. Yeah. Adolf Hitler was in prison in 1924 um, after his beer hall push in Germany um, when the United States passed the national origins quotas um, in that immigration law. And he, he watched that from prison um, while he was writing Mein Kampf. And if you look at Mein Kampf, he holds up the 1924 Immigration Act in the United States as the model for what Germany should do. So when his Nazi regime takes over, that's what he imagines is the proper way to handle immigration. So for him, it's the, the ideal case. Um, as you mentioned, by the 1930s, though, um, eugenics as a as a academic idea starts to fall out of favor. There are a number of scholars who question the arguments that these um, pseudoscientific theories were based on. Several of the key people who were involved in it start to question their own work in that field. Um, so as an academic idea, it's, it's on the way out by the late 1930s. Um, and then, of course, Hitler and the Nazis take eugenics to its extreme um, in the killing of millions of people um, in order to protect that idea of a white German identity um, in the Holocaust. Um, and so after World War II, the entire idea of eugenics um, has fallen completely out of favor. And so it's something that's criticized um, people who, even in the lead up to World War II, supported the Nazi regime, would have nothing to do with it afterwards. So it, it really does um, completely end the, the widespread reliance on that, that theory. 
Um, at the same time in the United States, the civil rights movement is beginning. Um, so that white supremacy that had been reinstituted um, after the reconstruction period um, through Jim Crow laws, um, through immigration restrictions, um, through the violence of the KKK, um, keeping that white identity at the forefront in the United States um, is challenged in the civil rights movement. So um, in 1952, free white person is removed from the immigration law um, and then in, um, in the citizenship law. Um, and then in the 1960s, uh, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act um, says that the United States government can't discriminate based on race, nationality, religion. Um, and what they realize is that the immigration law is in violation of that um, because that 1924 immigration law is based specifically on discriminating based on national origin that's that's what it is it's national origin quotas about who could enter the country um, so as part of those civil rights laws um, in the mid-1960s in 1965 they revise the Immigration Act um, and try to come up with a system that is uh, more fair and more in line with the values of the country um, in this civil rights world um, that's emerging at the time. Um, the big supporters of it are the Kennedy brothers. They're giving speeches on the, um, the Senate floor in favor of these changes. Um, and that law passes in 1965. It's called the Hart Seller Immigration Act. Um, and it's really the last major immigration act in the United States so that our current immigration laws are still based on that 1965 revision um, to the Immigration and Nationalities Act. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and today I'm speaking with Reese Jones, who's chair of the Department of Geography and Environment at the University of Hawaii. And we're talking about his book, White Borders, the History of Race and Immigration in the United States from Chinese Exclusion to the Border Wall. And that's published by Beacon Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. He's also the author of Violent Borders. You mentioned that in the 1960s, the Hart Seller Immigration Act was passed in the context of civil rights struggles. And of course, the 1960s was a time where all sorts of concerns about society came to the fore, including in that period, intense concerns about the environment and about ecological devastation. Can you tell us how concerns about the environment, as in earlier parts of American history, ended up alighting into Malthusian worries about overpopulation and migration. Yes, yeah, Sasha, this is the big story that I tell in the second half of the book um, to explain how the United States went from this civil rights era where uh, the idea of overt white supremacy was falling out of favor and where the immigration laws were revised in a way to try to remove the, um, the national origins quotas and the exclusionary rules that were in place. Um, how we end up going from there um, to Donald Trump and to the very strong anti-immigrant movement that we're seeing right now in the country. Um, and as you suggest, it starts in a really strange place. Um, it starts in the environmental movement. The, the first people who are at the forefront of this new anti-immigrant organizing in the United States are the same people who are behind the first Earth Day in 1970 um, and who are um, focused on protecting um, and uh, the, the American environment. Um, a key figure here is certainly Paul Ehrlich, um, Stanford professor, who wrote the book The Population Bomb. Um, it came out in, I believe, 1968, but it really took off in 1970 after he gave um, some interviews with Johnny Carson and kind of made the national news. Um, he had a group called Zero Population Growth, um, which was focused on keeping population at, at, at a zero level, not seeing any more growth. Um, and he suggested that this global increase in population was going to lead to a catastrophe where there would not be enough food um, for those people and there would not be um, places for them to live, shelters. Um, and so 
the early environmentalist movement is also focused on this population issue because of that population bomb book. So someone who was shaped by this is um, the figure, the character that, that I take through the end of the book, um, John Tanton. Um, he's this, in some ways, this larger than life figure. Um, some people have called him the most influential American that most people have never heard of. Um, but at the same time, uh, he is an ophthalmologist in upstate Michigan, in Petoskey, Michigan. Um, over his lifetime, he does over 4,000 eye surgeries. Um, he's also out on his, his land farming. He has um, huge bee colonies in one year. Um, his bees produce over 2,000 pounds of honey in a single year. Um, so he's doing all these things in Michigan. But at the same time, he becomes deeply enmeshed in this um, population-focused environmentalism. So he becomes the president of Ehrlich's Zero Population Growth in 1975. Um, he's involved with the Sierra Club's Population Committee in the early 1970s. Um, and he has a revelation that in order to protect the American environment, then the United States needs immigration restrictions. Um, and so he believes firmly that too many immigrants coming to an America was a threat to the environment that he loves around him. Um, in the 1970s, he has trouble drawing people into this movement with him. Um, Paul Ehrlich does work with him on it. Garrett Hardin, who wrote The Tragedy of the Commons, is also a close associate of John Tanton's. Um, but he isn't able to convince the Sierra Club or Zero Population Growth to focus um, explicitly on immigration. So in 1979, he decides to found his own organization, um, which is called the Federation for American Immigration Reform, FAIR, um, to be the preeminent um, anti-immigrant um, group in the United States. Um, and he succeeds in this. Um, so throughout the 1980s, he tirelessly chases money and chases politicians um, to draw them into his anti-immigrant movement. Um, he receives um, hundreds of thousands of dollars of donations from people like Warren Buffett. Um, Warren Buffett sits on the board of FAIR in the 1980s. Um, but at the same time, John Tanton is also building connections to the white supremacist movement because he realizes that the other people who are talking about the dangers of immigration at this period of time are generally white supremacists. And so he takes money from a group called the Pioneer Fund, which was a supporter of white supremacist causes um, throughout most of the 20th century. Um, and he's his um, in his his papers are available at the University of Michigan. He donated them there. Um, and in those papers, there are dozens of letters um, where he's writing and consulting with prominent white supremacists um, about the dangers of immigration to the United States. How do you think he succeeded in taking an idea, which of course has existed, as you have pointed out very clearly, in the United States for a very long time, this sort of nativism, but which had was not the central concern of the Republican Party? How did he end up shifting things through his various efforts and these different organizations that he founded to bring this issue right into the center? He did an enormous amount of work in the 1980s, and I think he focused on a few very specific things. Um, the first was cultivating wealthy donors. So I, I mentioned Warren Buffett already, um, but he also, the most significant connection that he made um, was Cordelia Scaife May. Um, she was an heir of the Mellon fortune. Uh, in the 1990s, she was said to be the wealthiest woman in the United States, um, but she also shared Tanton's uh, conservation focus um, and worries about population. Um, and so by the late 1990s, he had cultivated a strong relationship with her um, to where she funded these groups that he's founded. Um, and when she dies in 2005, she leaves all of her fortune, over $400 million, um, to a foundation called the Colcom Foundation, which has a very limited um, mission statement to fund these anti-immigrant movements um, and also conservation efforts. And they've continued to do that. So um, since uh, that donation in 2005, 
until 2018, the last year of data that I have, um, that one foundation gave $176 million to groups that Tanton organized um, to uh, prevent immigration to the United States. The second thing he did, in addition to cultivating these wealthy donors, um, was he realized that he couldn't just have one group. If it was just one group, fair, arguing that immigration should be restricted, um, he felt like it, it just could be overlooked, right? It could be ignored. Um, and so instead, he decided to, to found a suite of different groups. The idea being that all of the different groups could refer to each other, could work in concert with each other to prevent immigration to the United States, to expand this nativist agenda, but it would seem like it was this widespread effort, right? Um, so he founds a group called the Center for Immigration Studies. Their job is to be like a think tank and to produce um, reports on the dangers of immigration. Um, he founds a group called Numbers USA, um, and they're the grassroots organization. So their job is to um, reach out to regular people and then motivate them um, to talk to their Congress people, to send letters um, to newspapers, um, to spread this idea of nativism. Um, he founds a group called the Immigration Reform Law Institute, um, which is designed to carry out lawsuits, right, to um, question things like sanctuary cities um, and to write briefs when immigration issues come before the Supreme Court to make sure that there is a nativist voice at the table for these, these sorts of events. Um, Chris Kobach, who is probably familiar to some listeners as um, the uh, former Secretary of State of Kansas um, and someone who um, worked with Trump on his uh, voter fraud commission um, in during the Trump administration. Um, he is close. He is the lawyer for this Immigration Reform Law Institute. So, um, and that's that's just four of about two dozen different groups that Tanton forms. Um, the point is, it makes it seem like there are so many different groups out there um, that are arguing for immigration restrictions. When the reality is, they were all founded by one person, John Tanton, and they're predominantly funded by one person, Cordelia Scape May. Um, but the result is this seemingly widespread turn towards a nativist movement in the United States. Um, what we could do is talk a little bit about how they influenced policy in the early 2000s as kind of an example of how this, this came together to shape the Republican Party. Sure. Go ahead. Tell us about those. Yeah. So in the early 2000s, I don't know if your listeners remember, but there were two different periods when it seemed like Congress was going to do a comprehensive immigration reform. The idea was to give a path to citizenship for dreamers, to legalize people who are already in the country without documents, but then also to increase restrictions at the border, right? And so the idea was more restrictions, but also legalization to be this, this reform bill that would pass Congress. Um, and both in the 2006-2007 period, it had strong support of George Bush. Um, and then 2014, um, 13 and 14, it had strong support um, by um, Barack Obama. Um, and the media reported as if it was just going to pass. Um, the Tanton network, though, was completely against both of those reforms. And so they used all of their resources to move against them and to convince Republicans that their base did not support these ideas. So what they did was, one, focus on talk radio. So FAIR has this event um, called Hold Their Feet to Their Fire, where they bring in all these uh, talk radio hosts from around the country, um, and they all broadcast together from Washington, D.C., focusing on uh, anti-immigrant language. They've been doing that since about 2005. Um, Additionally, um, so when these bills were in place, um, groups like Numbers USA would organize its supporters to send in dozens of emails and faxes and to call their Congress people about these issues. Um, in the 2006 and seven reform, um, there was a one week period where they sent like tens of thousands of faxes to offices in Congress. So it worked out that each office was getting dozens of these letters that seemed to be from constituents about the, their opposition to this, these immigration reforms. Um, and in each of these cases, they end up succeeding, right? They end up 
demonstrating to Republicans that there is some base out there that's against immigration reforms, um, and in both instances, they fail. Um, so this becomes their playbook, right? And so by by the early by 2012, 13, 14, um, Republicans have shifted over towards this. Uh, nativist position, right? So that most Republicans fear that their base doesn't want any sort of reforms. Um, and so they're no longer willing to consider any of these changes. And so um, the Tanton Network succeeds in moving this issue that was fringe in the 1980s back to the forefront of the Republican Party, of course, setting the stage for a figure like Donald Trump. Indeed. Geographer Reese Jones is my guest. We're talking about white borders, the history of race and immigration in the United States from Chinese exclusion to the border wall. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So John Tanton died in 2019, but his network furnished significant staffing for Trump's campaign and for his administration. Can you tell us about the myriad ways that the Tanton Network influenced and, in fact, even staffed the Trump administration. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I didn't mention yet is that most of the groups in the Tanton Network are designated hate groups by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, So in the early 2000s, while they were making this effort to move nativism into the mainstream, um, they were also being criticized for the um, the extremist views that they have, and particularly the extremist views of John Tanton, the founder of those groups. Um, so they, they are designated hate groups, um, which but they nevertheless have so much money flowing into these organizations that they seem to be able to overcome that. They put up this veneer of being just regular think tanks um, in Washington, D.C., and they succeed in regularly appearing on uh, national radio shows, on television, um, and meeting with Congress people, testifying before Congress. So they have a lot of influence that way. One of the key figures, though, that makes the connection between the Tanton Network and the Trump administration is Stephen Miller. So Stephen Miller was, um, before he worked uh, in the Trump administration, he was an aide to Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions, the senator from uh, Alabama, was uh, closely tied to the Tanton Network. So when they were making these efforts to prevent comprehensive immigration reform, they were working hand in glove with Jeff Sessions' office in the Senate. Um, And uh, he regularly appears at their events. They've given him awards for his work. Um, And so when Stephen Miller moves into his office, he also develops these close ties with um, the Tanton Network. Um, Only a couple months before Donald Trump announced his candidacy for the presidency, um, Stephen Miller gave a keynote speech at the Center for Immigration Studies, which is a, is a group part of the Tanton group. Um, and a few years ago, his emails were leaked. Um, and during that period of time that were leaked, which covered from just before the Trump campaign through um, the beginning um, of the presidency, um, he emailed with someone at a Tanton group, hate group, at least once a week during that entire year and a half period um, that the emails were leaked. So he has very close ties to the the Tanton network. And he moves into the Trump campaign um, in January and joins the Trump campaign in January of 2016, um, becomes the speechwriter for Trump um, and also his warm-up speaker. So before Trump would go on stage, Stephen Miller would go and talk about these anti-immigrant views that he has. Um, The first senator to endorse Donald Trump was Jeff Sessions, right? And Jeff Sessions, of course, becomes um, the attorney general when Trump becomes president. Um, We see the the takeover, though, of the Trump campaign with um, by Tanton related people by August. Um, So um, they they hold a meeting about immigration policy in August in the lead up to the election. Um, this is after Steve Bannon has become the CEO of the campaign. Um, Kellyanne Conway is the, um, the um, campaign manager. 
Kellyanne Conway is someone who was the pollster for the Tantan network for a number of years. So she has close ties to all of these Tantan groups. Um, and they hold a meeting where they bring in experts to advise them um, about immigration policy. And every single person that they bring to that meeting um, either works for a Tantan network group, so people like Roy Beck, who's the president of Numbers USA, um, or is someone who has published a number of articles in these Tantan network outlets. So um, by that fall, the campaign was being advised by these anti-immigrant hate groups um, as the fundamental kind of immigration policy for, for Trump. Um, after he becomes president, there is a flood of these um, Tantan network officials into the administration. Um, in the book, White Borders, I document um, a, a number of these figures. Um, there are over a dozen people who used to work for a hate group who become hired into um, the Department of Justice, the White House, the Department of Homeland Security, um, including, for example, Julie Kirchner, who was the executive director of FAIR, um, Tanton's first group, um, for over a decade. Um, and she goes to work in the Department of Homeland Security. Um, beyond those that had worked at a hate group, I identified 12 more individuals who spoke at a CIS event or a FAIR event while they were working in the White House. So they, they went to a hate group and gave a speech while they were government officials, um, which from my interactions with the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, they're not aware of any previous instance of someone working at a hate group and then being hired into an administration. So um, it's really a shocking turn of events, but demonstrates um, the deep influence that this Tantan network had on the Trump administration. What do we know about the genesis of Trump's Muslim ban? So the Muslim ban, I think, is in line with a lot of the other um, policies that the Trump administration wanted to put into place in terms of ways to prevent non-white people from entering the United States. Um, after he was elected, Trump created um, a working group. Stephen Miller created a working group um, of people to write executive orders that they could pass within the first weeks of the administration. Um, and that working group included the same groups of people that I was talking about before who had previously worked at these hate groups. They're brought in to draft the text of these policies that could be put in place um, in those first weeks of the administration. And the Muslim ban is the first one, right? That's put in place the, the first week that they're in um, and catches everyone off guard, I think, um, because it was something that Trump had talked about, but it wasn't something that, that many people thought would happen right away. Um, and of course, it's something that gets contested in the courts, um, but it eventually passes. Um, the passes muster at the Supreme Court um, and was determined to be legal. I wanted to ask you about the contemporary far right's idea of the Great Replacement, which harkens back to the passing of the Great Race of a century before and other variations on the same theme about the white population being swamped or diluted by other people, people from elsewhere, people of color. How do you understand the relationship between the alt-right, which has been the most prominent face of those notions of the Great Replacement, and you start the book by reminding us of the Unite the Right rally that took place in Charlottesville in 2017, and the march by these tiki torch-holding fascists chanting, you will not replace us. How do you see the relationship between the alt-right and the larger ecosystem, if you will, of the Tantan network and those involved in it? If you think back to that event in 2017 in Charlottesville, um, I think it shocked a lot of people to hear those overt white supremacist phrases um, of you will not replace us you will not replace us. Um, and at the time, if you look at the statements of a lot of mainstream Republicans, they criticized it, right? They said, that's not who we are. We don't support those, those sort of ideas. Um, but if you look back at the history of the United States, like I do in White Borders, um, the reality is that same sort of logic is the justification for all of the U.S.'s immigration laws. Um, in the Chinese 
um, Exclusion Act era, um, there was the fear that Chinese people were going to replace white Americans. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, um, President Teddy Roosevelt talked about race suicide, the idea that if too many non-white immigrants were allowed to come in the United States, it would be the suicide of the white race. Um, as I said before, Calvin Coolidge, his campaign slogan was, keep America American. Um, the KKK talked about 100% Americanism. Um, if we move forward to the, the contemporary era, um, white supremacists use that same sort of language. They talk about, instead of race suicide, they talk about white genocide. Um, they talk about the great replacement. Um, so what I talk about in the book is that that's really the thread that connects together all of the immigration laws, is this fear of the replacement of white people. Um, it's something that was common to be said through the 1960s. Um, but after the civil rights movement, that sort of white supremacist language certainly was pushed to the sidelines and became a fringe idea. Um, what's concerning to me um, is what's happening this year um, in terms of the Republican Party and their supporters in the media. Um, because what they criticized in 2017 at Unite the Right, the idea of you will not replace us, um, is what um, people are talking about, like Tucker Carlson on Fox News every night, right? That, um, that people are cheering the extinction of white people and that, um, that the Democrats want to replace white voters with people from other parts of the world. Um, so it's, it's really shocking to hear how quickly that has become the mainstream consensus, apparently, um, in the Republican Party about immigration, um, as the Republican Party increasingly looks and sounds like a white supremacist party. Well, with that in mind, I wanted to ask you, especially looking toward the future, how do you understand the popular support in the United States for anti-immigrant or nativist politics, given that you told us earlier how the Tanton Network made a case against immigration when it was not a key concern for Republicans? Has that fundamentally shifted how people, and I'm not talking now about leaders of the right, but ordinary voters see these questions? And, and how deep do you think that the concern about nativism is for the public at large? Yeah, Sasha, I think that's an important question because over the last few years, the nativist point of view has been very loud, right? They had a megaphone with Trump and with Stephen Miller um, and people like Tucker Carlson right now on TV. Um, and there's no doubt that they have moved the right wing of the United States population um, further to the right and become strongly anti-immigrant in their language and actions. Um, the thing we have to remember is that that's not half of the U.S. population, right? It's not even um, a quarter of the U.S. population, right, that is a, a right-wing member of the Republican Party. Um, it's a much smaller percentage of people in the U.S. And if you look at polls, for example, um, Pew Research Center has done a poll for um, almost 20 years where they measure um, the population's um, support for immigration. Um, and so they ask whether legal immigration to the United States should be decreased, kept at the present level, or increased. Um, in 2002, 2003, um, the numbers were 50% of the population said it should be decreased, about 30% said it kept the same, and only 10% increased. Fast forward to the present day, the last times that they've taken this poll, um, those numbers have switched positions. So um, the, in the latest version, 38% of people said that immigration should be kept at the current level, 32% say it should be increased, um, and only 24% say decreased. So although the far right has certainly shifted extremely anti-immigrant in their rhetoric, the population as a whole has not. And I think in some ways it's a reaction to the overt racism on the right, right? So that it's, um, it's certainly consolidated power for that anti-immigrant position in the Republican Party, but it's also turned off a much larger percentage of the population. So um, I think that the way that we often cover this issue in the media, we highlight that anti-immigrant language, um, even though it's a position held by only a small percentage of people in the country. I'd like to ask you about the environmental movement, because 
Your book highlights the ways that environmentalism has been a fertile ground for nativist and anti-immigrant sentiment and politics, not just in the late 19th or early 20th century, but through the 1960s and, in fact, to recent times. You write about the organization, the Sierra Club, the venerable environmental group, and the conflict that roiled it around immigration. Can you tell us about that story and the degree to which you think environmentalists need to be aware of this nativist history and the complications from it? Yeah, so the Sierra Club has been associated with nativist um, people for a number of years. Um, I mentioned The Population Bomb um, by Paul Ehrlich. Sierra Club was the co-publisher of that book. Um, And John Tanton, um, the founder of these anti-immigrant hate groups, um, was a member and a leader in the Sierra Club in the 1970s. He was the head of their immigration committee and population committee. So so there's a long history of those connections. Um, In the 1990s, though, Tanton, he'd founded his suite of all these uh, anti-immigrant groups, but he still eyed the Sierra Club as a group that was possibly open to his ideas. Um, And so in 1998, he and his allies attempted a hostile takeover of the Sierra Club. So they um, put put petitions in to um, have the Sierra Club um, take a strongly anti-immigrant stance. Um, And they also ran candidates for the the board of directors of the Sierra Club um, with the idea of getting enough of their supporters on there um, in order to change the direction of it and make it essentially another member of this Tanta network of anti-immigrant groups. Um, And they came pretty close. They got uh, three different people elected to the board of directors in the early 2000s, um, and they were able to get um, the membership to hold several votes on this issue. The Southern Poverty Law Center, though, um, was wise to this um, and got involved in it and spread the word about the dangers of these hate groups um, becoming involved in the Sierra Club. So the membership ends up voting down um, this effort to turn it into an anti-immigrant group. Um, But they made a really strong effort, and it was something that roiled the organization in the early 2000s. Reese Jones, thank you so much for joining me today. Sasha, it was a pleasure. This is a great conversation. Rhys Jones is the author of White Borders, The History of Race and Immigration in the United States, From Chinese Exclusion to the Border Wall. You can find a link to it at againstthegrain.org. That book is published by Beacon Press. Rhys Jones is also the author of Violent Borders and chairs the Department of Geography and Environment at the University of Hawaii. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.